And now to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Jessica Weiss. She is originally from the Midwest and went to medical school at Southern Illinois University before coming out to Portland to attend OHSU for residency in internal medicine and then fellowship in nephrology. Dr. Weiss is currently an associate professor of medicine at OHSU in the Division of Nephrology and Hypertension and is also the training program director for the Nephrology Fellowship. Dr. Weiss has a long-standing interest in hypertension and CKD management in older adults, as well as an advanced communication skills for discussions around serious illness. Thank you so much, Dr. Weiss, for joining us today, and I will turn it over to you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, and I appreciate you having me to have a discussion with you about one of my favorite topics, which is how our kidneys change as we get older and how we go about making decisions for advanced CKD care in our older patients. I don't have anything to disclose. And today it will cover, will include a review of how our kidneys change physiologically as we age. And then we'll move on to talk a little bit about what patients with advanced kidney disease who are older look like in terms of their own clinical characteristics and we'll examine the option that is not dialysis, that of maximum conservative management, and how patients might go about pursuing that option and what it could look like for them. I'll do my best to keep an eye on the time and save some time for questions at the end. So I think that you all know that chronic kidney disease can have a lot of different shapes and sizes, so to speak. There are times when it's really obvious there are times when it's present and you're watching it, uh, times when you know exactly what you think you need to do, right? But then there are times with chronic kidney disease where perhaps it's less obvious or perhaps the path forward isn't as clear. Knowing the right thing for a patient in terms of chronic kidney disease can vary. And I would say that not always, but often these more complex or confusing cases of chronic kidney disease happen in older patients. So before we jump into talking about the aging kidney in earnest, it's really important to make sure that everyone knows how we define chronic kidney disease because you cannot manage something that you can't recognize. And so just briefly, this is the definition of chronic kidney disease from KDGO, which is the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Group, the International Guideline Group for Nephrology. And what it shows is that you can either have a marker of kidney damage or a decrease in glomerular filtration rate or GFR it has to be present for at least three months to give someone the technical definition of CKD. Markers of kidney damage can be anything from a horseshoe kidney, solitary kidney, polycystic kidney with preserved GFR, hematuria and proteinuria with preserved GFR, really anything that says there's something wrong in the kidney that can give you that definition. But by and large, the most common way that we define CKD is through changes in GFR. So glomerular filtration rate is measure of the excretory function of our kidneys. It's how well our kidneys clean the blood, but it is considered to be the best overall measure of kidney function because all of the things that the kidneys do, and they do a lot, uh, including hormone production like EPO and mineral bone balance, all of that tracks with GFR. So you wouldn't expect to see somebody with anemia related to their CKD um, with a GFR of 80. Right? We just don't see that. You wait for that GFR to fall and then you see that CKD associated illness kind of come into play as well. GFR is typically estimated as opposed to directly measured. You can directly measure GFR by taking something that's not usually in the body, 
that's freely filtered by the glomeruli and, and putting it into the body, like inulin, for example. Um, but that's not practical for everyday clinical work. And so we use endogenous substances, excuse me, for estimated GFR, most commonly creatinine, with kind of an increasing interest in cystatin C. So the thing about creatinine is there's particular pertinence with older adults, I think, because it's a byproduct of muscle. And the way I usually explain this to my patients is that you wouldn't expect the exact same normal creatinine for a 25-year-old bodybuilder and a 95-year-old woman because they have different amounts of muscle mass. Recognition that baseline creatinine can be different, often lower than expected, especially in older adults with loss of muscle, is really important, not only for recognition of CKD, but for recognition of, of kidney disease change, change in function over time. Cystatin C is increasing in popularity and use. It has its own kind of pluses and pitfalls. It's also imperfect. Um, however, the thing I would note about cystatin C right now is that it's not available everywhere. And if you haven't already ordered this for a patient, you should know that it tends to cost patients a little bit more. I doubt it will be that way forever, but right now patients will often get a larger bill if you order a cystatin C. So that's something to keep in mind if you're wanting to augment your um, GFR estimation with that test. And I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the fact that our estimating equation for GFR has recently changed. This would easily be an hour long discussion in and of itself, and I promise not to sit on this slide for an hour, but I do wanna make sure everyone knows that the way that we estimate GFR has been adjusted. ASN, the American Society of Nephrology and NKF, the National Kidney Foundation, put out a joint statement recently that they recommend the use of the CKD epi equation with creatinine that's refit without race. Um, Again, I, I don't want to give more background than you want here, but the CKD-EPI equation was originally developed by the CKD-EPI collaborative group in 2009. It's actually the same roughly group of authors that developed the MDRD equation in the late 1990s, but using a broader and more diverse population for the development of the score and equation. And then this most recent version is refit without a race variable, meaning they didn't just take the race variable away, they took it away and then recalculated or recalibrated the other variables in the equation. And for all the reasons laid out in the position statement and in some very lovely papers from the New England Journal late last year, um, they explain why this is the equation they landed on. The other thing I would say here is that this equation is as imperfect as every EGFR equation we've ever had. It is well and truly an estimate. And I try very hard to explain to patients that there's a significant error rate here, that I'm not pinning an exact number to them with this equation, but it's more to do with an overall sense of their kidney function and trajectory in terms of renal function change over time. Um, I know that our lab at OHSU recently moved to this new equation and the lab at the VA is in the process of, you all may have done this as well, but if you ever need it, you can Google NKF EGFR 2021 and get to this website and this calculator. So it's very easy to find. And there is a slightly better version of this uh, equation where you can include cystatin C. It's a little more accurate, but because cystatin C is not readily available to everyone, that is not currently the, the most recommended equation. So with that background in mind and understanding how we define CKD and how important GFR is in that definition, let's kind of take that and set it to the side and think a little bit about how our kidneys change with age. Um, and not only that, what's expected, what do we think will happen with age in everybody, and then what's clinically meaningful decline, because there's potentially a difference there. It's been known for actually a long time that GFR does go down as we get older. 
Um, this is a study from the 1950s in men where GFR was directly measured with inulin. Um, and this is one patient example, um, but it followed this overall trend. And what studies like this have shown is that GFR is actually not at its peak when we're born. It starts a little bit lower than peak and increases up to the fourth decade of life, at which point it starts to come back down. And on average across studies, it's been found that folks tend to lose about eight mils per minute per decade after the fourth decade of life. So you can see this decline really represented clearly here. Renal blood flow follows a similar pattern where it's not quite at peak at birth. It peaks at about 600 mils per minute in the fourth decade for most people and then does start to come down. So why does GFR change? Why does it go down as we get older? There are a lot of physiologic or pathologic changes inside the kidneys that happen as we age, and some of them are represented here. So you can see changes in the mesangial matrix and in the glomerular basement membrane, foot process fusion, and changes in blood vessels so that blood vessels maybe are feeding glomeruli that aren't there anymore. They've sclerosed and disappeared, or the blood vessels themselves have atrophied. And all of this together can combine to create a scenario where you have more global sclerosis or scarring down of that functional filtration unit of the kidney, the nephron. And that's been demonstrated across studies as well. Actually, I think one of the earliest studies that showed changes in glomerular sclerosis with age was an autopsy study from the 1970s, where they actually biopsied kidneys at the time of autopsy in adults who had died of a non-renal cause, um, mostly motor vehicle accidents. And they looked at the degree of glomerular sclerosis across ages in these people who had what was felt to be relatively normal renal function during life and found that even with that normal renal function on the surface, the rate of sclerosis glomeruli increased as age advanced. That's been shown again more recently in this study by Rule and colleagues out of the Mayo Clinic. At the time of this study, the Mayo Clinic's transplant program was doing directly measured GFR using inulin, so an exogenous measurement of GFR in their donors. And they were also biopsying donor kidneys at the time of donation, which is just this kind of ripe um, database, right, for understanding how kidneys may be different across different age groups. And that's what they looked at. So you can see they, they allowed donors anywhere from age 18 up to 77, and the measured GFR did change with age, it went down. But even in those in the 70 to 77 year old age range of donors, it was still 86 on average, right? And these are folks where the GFR was felt to be adequate to give away a kidney. When they biopsied those kidneys at the time of transplant, they found that even in this group where GFR was adequate to donate, 73% of people had two or more sclerosis on their biopsy sample. So it's there, it's definitely changing over time but it's not necessarily affecting GFR in a way that is clinically meaningful. And we're gonna come and touch on that a little bit more in just a minute. Just briefly, there are a few other things that change in the kidneys as we get older. Um, other vascular changes have to do with vascular responsiveness. So older adults who are exposed to a stimulus that should cause vasoconstriction will have a stronger and longer vasoconstrictor response than their younger counterparts who are exposed to the same stimulus. Um, and that's not great. That's not actually adaptive, right? You're, you're clamping down longer and harder than you should. Um, similarly, they will have a less of a vasodilatory response um, to a stimulus that should cause vasodilation compared to their younger counterparts. And those two things can work together to decrease blood flow in a way that, that could be detri detrimental over time. You can also see changes in the tubular interstitium. The tubules aren't as close together as they should be. There's kind of more tissue intervening and more scar um, and a decreased overall number of tubules. You can see changes in hormone responsiveness over time, in particular, decreased response to aldosterone. So you can have more trouble 
um, getting rid of a sodium load, for example, that might lead to some increased risk of edema. Let's circle back to this idea of GFR falling as we get older. So all of those pathologic and physiologic changes, it makes some sense, right, as to why we would see GFR decline as we age. Um, this is data from a different group than that much earlier study, but uh, these are actually data from the 1970s as well in men and women with directly measured GFR by inulin clearance. And you can see every dot here is a person uh, that GFR does start to kind of decline after that fourth decade in life. But what I'd like to point out here is that even though we talked about all those changes that happen in the kidney, and even though we see the dots going down, the GFR is falling, this red line is a GFR of 60. So this is CKD3, where we might start to see the earliest signs of kind of more consequences of CKD. We might track it a little more. We might see some CKD-associated illness. And it's not as though all of these dots are falling below that red line. GFR is declining, but is it clinically meaningful decline in everyone? And I, and I would argue it, it probably isn't. And why is that, right, with all of those changes? And I think this comes down to the idea of reserve. So we all have two kidneys, or most of us do. Uh, we have two kidneys, which is more than we need. We only give people one when we do a transplant. So there's this kind of bonus tissue because the kidneys are so important. There's extra, right? It's how I talk to my fellows and my patients about it. Um, and it gives a little bit of leeway. So you can have those changes and that loss of function and still maintain a GFR that probably isn't going to cause you any trouble. However, um, this change in reserve as we get older can affect the risk of both AKI and CKD progression over time. When we think about the risk of CKD progression, older adults do have a higher risk probably for this reason. And they also have a higher risk, um, if, excuse me, after acute kidney injury, you can also have a loss of reserve, which can increase your risk. And then folks with pertinent comorbidities um, can also have a loss of reserve. So think of your diabetics and patients with advanced vascular disease. They may have lost some of their renal reserve related to their comorbidities, and those things can come together to increase the risk of CKD progression over time. And comorbidities are pertinent because CKD, especially in older patients, rarely occurs in a vacuum. It's almost never alone. Um, this is data from the USRDS, the United States Renal Data System, uh, and what it shows is that adults with CKD, and I should say these are Medicare recipients, um, adults with CKD um, are more likely to have diabetes than adults without, more likely to have hypertension, more likely to have cardiovascular disease, and in fact are more likely to have a combination of important comorbidities. So if these are folks without CKD, these are folks with CKD, you can see that the risk of diabetes atherosclerotic heart disease and heart failure is greater in folks with CKD than without, and a combination therein is, is also a greater risk. And again, those things together can decrease renal reserve in a way that can change your risk for CKD progression over time. But when talking about older adults with chronic kidney disease and advanced CKD, it's important to also think about the idea of competing risk. Competing risk, of course, meaning that um, landing on dialysis is one bad thing that could happen, right? But it's not the only bad thing that could happen. And in fact, as we get older, the, the most looming and large competing risk is that of death. And there have been a number of studies, two represented here, that have really looked at how our risk of, of advanced uh, CKD or ESRD changes compared to death over time. And what these have found is that, especially when you get to the oldest adults, say around age 80, you really need to have a GFR pretty low, below 20, below 15, before your risk of progressing to dialysis supersedes your risk of dying of anything else. 
So that doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it is important if we're going to have discussions with patients about important healthcare planning and decision-making and healthcare priorities to keep in mind that CKD is not always going to be their dominant comorbidity. Um, and it's not always going to be the thing um, that is most important in their healthcare picture. And understanding that um, in context uh, can be really valuable. All of that said, some patients do get there. And in fact, adults over the age of 75 have been the largest incident group of dialysis patients um, for many, many years now. And that's probably, again, because of this idea that older adults have an increased risk of having CKD and CKD progression um, because of their complex comorbidity and the way that the kidneys are changing over time. So there are patients who get to this point, and it's important to know how to broach this subject and think about discussions for advanced CKD care in these patients. And we're going to move on to that now. We're going to do that using some clinical cases because I feel like it not only makes it hopefully a little more interesting, but um, highlights clinical relevance and gives some real world examples of, of how we might see this in clinic. Um, so we're going to look at two patients here. We're talking about Mr. A. Um, Mr. A has some complex comorbidities, got isolated hypertension, uh, systolic hypertension, excuse me. He's got some coronary disease, he's got AFib. He lives in assisted living and his creatinine it runs in the high, kind of mid to high eights. But then let's look at Mr. B. So Mr. B, same age, um, also has complex comorbidity, but it's a little different. So he has coronary disease. It's been active a little more recently. He has AFib, but he's been having some trouble with RVR. He has some reduced ejection fraction. And in the context of his somewhat more active or severe comorbidities, he's not living independently. He's currently in a sniff after a recent hospital stay. And his baseline creatinine is, is higher than his brother's, right? It's 2.8. So let's look a little bit at these folks over time. So Mr. A is represented in green here, and you can see that he does have this creatinine that hovers in the high ones. It's probably you know, relatively significant CKD, a GFR in the in the kind of 30 to low, uh, 30 to 35 range most likely, um, but it's been very stable. Uh, and stable is incredibly meaningful in older adults for all of the reasons we just talked about. If we're thinking about competing risk, if somebody has an abnormal creatinine that is just not changing, um, how likely is that to be the thing um, that supersedes their risk of dying, right? Whereas in his brother, Mr. B, you can see that his creatinine started out somewhat similarly a couple of years ago, but in this relatively short period of time, he's had multiple admissions, not specifically for renal problems, but in each instance, he's had some AKI. You can see the stepwise potential loss of renal reserve and renal function such that his trajectory has changed significantly. Um, and if I were to choose one of these brothers with whom I would want to have a discussion about advanced CKD care first, I, I would choose Mr. B first for this reason, because his trajectory worries me. Um, trajectory, of course, is not the only reason you might choose to have these discussions with your patients. It might be somebody who's had a rapid change, someone who brings it up on their own, uh, someone who's had a slow decline over time. But this is an example of something I see not uncommonly in clinic, um, which is why I have it represented here. So if you're going to talk with a patient about advanced chronic kidney disease, you're going to have to talk about dialysis. And I think it's really appropriate uh, to couch dialysis uh, in the idea that, that it is a form of life support. And perhaps that seems really obvious, but I don't think it's often thought of in the same way as, say, a ventilator, right? Um, because you're not on dialysis 24 hours a day outside of the ICU. You come and go from it. And I think that patients don't always think of it in the same way. But it is, in fact, a modality to treat organ failure. And, and the idea, of course, is to prolong life. 
Right. So with that in mind, let's think about what dialysis can do. So in a very technical way, dialysis can clean your blood, assuming you tolerate being on the machine, and dialysis can balance fluids and electrolytes. But arguably for all adults, and certainly for older adults, um, the technical what it can do may not be as important as what it can do in, in a big picture way for the person in front of you. So can it make their life longer? Can it make their life better? Take the first part of this um, initially here, can it prolong life? And the answer is is probably, um, but maybe not as much as we would hope uh, or uh, kind of in the way that we would hope. So this is just one example of data that's been shown across studies, and it's the idea that how long someone lives after dialysis initiation is directly tied to how old they are when they start dialysis and how sick they are, the complexity of their comorbidities. This is data, <clears throat> excuse me, from Tamora and colleagues from 2009, and it shows the median survival after dialysis initiation for those starting at age 80 up to age 90. And you can see that folks over the age of 90 um, are, are generally living less than a year. And in fact, one year survival for adults over the age of 80 who start dialysis is roughly 50%. Um, and that is not spread equally over the course of that year. About 20% will die in the first three months. It is known that patients do have an increased risk of mortality after initiating dialysis, but for comparison, 10% of adults ages 65 to 79 will die in the first three months. So it's not the same. That risk is higher um, in these uh, oldest old folks over the age of 80. So why does this happen? And it probably has, again, much to do with what they bring with them to dialysis, right? The complexity of their comorbidity and what they're carrying with them when they start dialysis. Um, this high rate of comorbidity just can't be emphasized enough. Um, but in addition, <clears throat> and we'll unpack this a little bit more, older adults starting dialysis often have high degrees of both frailty and falls. So the traditional definition of frailty is shown here. It's from Linda Fried's paper in 2001. Um, and using this definition, Johansson and colleagues looked at the degree of frailty both in older adults who were not on dialysis, the green box here, and older adults who were on dialysis, the blue box here. And you can see that frailty is still relatively common. So in the general population for folks over 80, 40% met this definition of frailty. But in folks over 80 on dialysis, almost 80% were frail by this definition, and 74% were frail even in this slightly younger subset. And this is meaningful because frailty carries an increased risk of falls, of hospitalization, of disability, and of death. Um, so it's an important thing to be able to kind of identify in your patients, especially as a risk when you're thinking about how, how things will go for them um, on dialysis and moving forward in general. A little bit more about falls. So 45% of older adults on dialysis will have at least one fall a year. And falls are slightly more common when folks are first starting dialysis. Of course, they're influenced by age and comorbidity as well. Falls are most likely more common when folks are starting dialysis because of the kind of push and pull and um, balance that we're trying to achieve when somebody's first starting in terms of when they take their medications and their dry weight and fluid removal how well they're tolerating the machine. And so watching for falls, especially around the time of dialysis initiation, is very important for older adults. Um, and in fact, increased, um, excuse me, frequency of falling is associated with an increased risk of mortality in this population as well. The other thing I would say about dialysis initiation in older adults is that setting, is mat setting matters. Location is very important. 
this is a study by Wong and colleagues where they looked at this. They looked at about 400,000 patients from USRDS data. So the United States renal data system um, actually gets a form filled out by a nephrologist every time somebody starts dialysis. So they've got a lot of data about people who start dialysis. And in this study, they looked at folks over a period of about 13 years. Um, they were ages 67 and up. And they divided folks into kind of a setting and intensity of healthcare at the time of dialysis initiation. So you had <clears throat> about 35% of folks who started dialysis did so in the outpatient setting, which means about 65% were inpatient at the time of dialysis initiation in this older subset of patients. Um, and then they broke it down into kind of intensity of care. So hospital for more or less than two weeks. And did they have um, what they called an intensive pr procedure? And in this study, they defined an intensive procedure as um, tube feeds, mechanical ventilation, or CPR. And personally, I see kind of a difference in intensity across those three procedures, but that is how they defined it um, for the purposes of this. And you can see in this slide the breakdown of those patients. So here are your outpatients. Um, here are folks who had a less than two-week stay and no intensive procedure, and then kind of smaller numbers of folks who had longer stays and intensive procedures. And they then looked at these groups in terms of mortality. So depending on what group you were in and your age, how long did you live after dialysis initiation? And what they found, of course, was that um, the longer your hospital stay in particular, the less likely you were going to, the less, excuse me, long you would live after starting dialysis. And um, that decreased over time with age. So that in 85 and up, if you had greater than two weeks hospitalization and at least one intensive procedure, you were probably looking at less than a year. Which doesn't, I suppose, sound very surprising in the face of it all, but it's still helpful to understand in terms of context and knowing that when you start somebody on dialysis can be very important in terms of their big picture prognosis for survival. So we talked a little bit about life prolongation with dialysis, um, but what about does it make life better? Because this is often the thing that we think about, right? If you're looking at somebody and they're in the ICU or they're in the hospital or they're in your clinic and they're swollen or their potassium's high or they're miserable and, and you think, well, maybe this will help them feel better. Maybe dialysis will help them do the things that matter to them. They can garden, they can spend time with their family, they can do rehab. That's the hope, right? And unfortunately, that, that also doesn't seem to be terribly um, likely. So this is data from Tomorrow and Colleagues from 2009, where they looked at older adults um, who were either in a skilled nursing facility or who had been in a nursing facility within two weeks of dialysis initiation. And they watched their functional status over time. And with the hope and idea that you would see folks become more functional after starting dialysis. Um, but that is not in fact what they found. Um, what they found was that within three months of dialysis initiation, 61% had died. <clears throat> so this, that number sounds a little worse than some of the numbers we just looked at, but keep in mind these are folks, and I should have mentioned, who are older, mean age 74, um, and who are in a skilled nursing facility. So perhaps um, a kind of sicker subset than some of the data we talked about a few minutes ago. So 61% had died within three months, and at 12 months, only one in eight patients had maintained their functional status compared to pre-dialysis. So not improved, not lost functional status since dialysis initiation. Only one in eight had maintained and seven in eight had gotten worse. So then you might say, well, that is a sicker subset of patients, right? So we could perhaps predict that patients who are already in a skilled nursing facility at the time of dialysis initiation really wouldn't do well with dialysis and, and might not get better. 
So think instead about that 80-year-old patient you have in clinic or that you see in the hospital who still lives independently. They're living in the community on their own. So this study looked at folks that were more like that. This is data from Jassal out of Canada. And they looked at about 100 patients um, who were 80 and up, 78% um, of whom were independently community dwelling at the time of dialysis initiation. And they followed them for two and a half years. So you can see the three categories here. So 78% were independent and community dwelling, 15% um, were in assisted living, and 6% were in a SNF. And what they found was that 30% um, of patients had a decline in functional status um, within six months of dialysis initiation. And you can kind of see that reflected here. Um, and at the end of the study, 16% of patients were alive for two and a half years, and only 4% were alive and living independently, down from 78%. So it's, it's a little bit disheartening. And you might say to yourself, well, why would anyone do that? Why would, I, why would anyone do dialysis? You're, it's not clear if you're going to live longer. Maybe you're going to live longer, but not as long as you'd hoped. You may not live better. The quality of your life might not be better. So why would a patient ever go down this path? And I think it really comes to the idea that if you only talk about dialysis, if you only show them the door to dialysis, they are going to walk through that door because they feel like it's dialysis or death. So if you never show them another door, they don't have another way to go. It is really important then to introduce the idea of maximum conservative management as a potential alternative. So maximum conservative management is basically everything but dialysis. It is managing anemia and fluids and electrolytes and bone mineral disease and all of the things that go along with CKD up to the point of starting dialysis and then rolling in some end of life care as part of this. Ending on that, it's this idea of a multidisciplinary approach, having time to go through advanced care planning, think about symptom and pain relief, incorporate hospice when appropriate. So all of this should be a part of maximum conservative management. And in this way, maximum conservative management is really fundamentally a shift from thinking about prolonging life to just focusing on care and quality of life. So whenever I talk to patients about maximum conservative management, this idea of how long they're going to live is, is always the kind of the first question. Well, and, and, and when people, I don't know if people are Googling this or I'm hearing it from other friends and family, but so often people say, well, if I don't start dialysis, I've only got a week or two to live. And I think that really comes from a kind of different place in terms of data and experience. So um, there's a big difference between someone who has a GFR of zero and someone who has a GFR of five six, seven, eight. Um, and those don't sound like great numbers, and they're not great. It's, it's really bad, but it's not zero. So if you have a patient who's been on dialysis for years and they don't urinate at all, and they've got a true GFR of zero, when they stop dialysis, time is short, right? You are probably looking at one to two weeks, depending on how much they eat and their fluid balance and their other comorbidities. But it's very different for someone who has even a little bit of renal reserve. Time doesn't look quite the same. And that's important when we're thinking about maximum conservative management. Maximum conservative management has been really nicely explored um, primarily in the UK, but uh, in Europe in general. Um, in the UK, they have these lovely advanced CKD clinics um, where they actually have patients come who have CKD late stage four or five or rapidly progressive CKD. 
and they have a multidisciplinary approach to care. So you have your nephrologist there, social worker, a dietitian, you might have a palliative care provider there uh, to really approach CKD care um, all together um, in this very holistic way. And this study comes out of a clinic like that. Murtaugh and colleagues have done a lot of work in this area. So they looked at how long people live um, when they do maximal conservative management versus dialysis. They looked specifically at a subset here of folks over the age of 75. Um, and what they found was that people who choose dialysis live longer. They do, they live longer than folks who choose maximal conservative management. However, the one year survival rate here, 68% in the conservative management group. It's less than the dialysis group, but it's still better than you might think. Right. And in fact, a number of studies have looked over time and found that the average duration of life after a GFR falls below 10 for someone doing maximum conservative management is 12 to 18 months. There, of course, is potential for individual variability there, depending again on comorbidities, but that's a lot longer than people tend to think. I guess I would also note quickly here that this one year survival is so much higher than some of the studies we just talked about, and that is probably at least in part because in these clinics, they're pretty good at introducing the idea of maximum conservative management and shepherding folks who really won't benefit from dialysis towards that decision. They still offer flexibility and people can ultimately choose what they want, but I would suggest that the, the sickest older adults who really are not gonna do well in dialysis are perhaps less likely to do so from this type of a clinical setting. So this same information is represented graphically here. So folks who do dialysis do live longer than folks who do maximum conservative management. Um, and they used a starting point, I should mention, of 15. So you can't, you have to have a starting gun uh, when you're looking at maximum conservative management because you don't have that started dialysis moment. So they followed folks from when the GFR fell below 15 for each of these groups. Um, but then they also looked at a couple of subgroups, and I think it's interesting. So they looked at older adults, these the same group of 75 and up, um, with advanced CKD and what they called high comorbidity. And they used um, a specific comorbidity score that had been used in in other dialysis patients and included characteristics like malignancy, ischemic heart disease, reduced ejection fraction, diabetes, among others. And if you had two or more of those, you were considered to have high comorbidity, and if you had less than two, it was low. And what they found was that in patients who are identified using that score as having high comorbidity, how long they lived after dialysis initiation didn't really differ from how long folks who chose maximum conservative management lived. There wasn't really a survival benefit for folks with high comorbidity. And the survival benefit is arguably also lost or small in older adults with ischemic heart disease. So keeping in mind that, that maybe the answer to that question of will you live longer is no for some patients um, who choose dialysis and have um, high degrees of comorbidity or specific illnesses concurrent. I really love this study. Um, so this is also out of a group in the UK, same kind of clinical setup, an advanced CKD clinic um, where they give um, really kind of good education around the choices of dialysis or maximum conservative management. So in this study, they looked at about 330 patients. They were slightly younger, the mean age was 61. Um, and what they did was they would meet with somebody and they would get to know them and then they would give a recommendation. They would say, Mr. X, we think you would really benefit from dialysis. We think you should do that. Or Mr. Y, we really don't think dialysis is gonna help you. We think you should choose maximum conservative management. But patients got to do whatever they wanted. Right, so um, this graph breaks that down. So this is the group of folks where the physicians met with the patient and said, we think you should do dialysis. And the patient said, okay, let's do it. And they lived longer, right? This line 
is patients who the physician said, we really don't think you're going to benefit from doing dialysis. We think you should do maximum conservative management. And the patient said, okay, they lived less long. This line is the patient's for whom physicians said, we think you should do maximum conservative management, and the patients chose dialysis. And they really didn't live longer than the patients who did maximum conservative management alone. And I find this just, I, I love this study. I think this is so smart and interesting um, because it speaks to the idea that, that we can tell, right? We can tell as physicians who's gonna do well with this life prolonging or, or end of life therapy. Um, it doesn't mean we're always going to force that decision on people, but it's important to know that we're good at knowing what's going to happen um, to folks over time. The other thing people will often ask about in terms of maximum conservative management is if I'm going to gain time, what's that time going to look like? Because I think there's this idea that, well, I'm going to live longer and that's good enough for me. And, and all that time is translated into good, happy home family time, right? But in fact, when you commit to dialysis, and you all know this, that's not home time. There's a lot of time at the dialysis unit, and there's a lot of time in the hospital for complications related to dialysis. And this study really tried to break this down. So they looked at um, a group of patients who chose maximum conservative management, about 30 folks, and about 110 folks who chose dialysis. And they looked at their time. So this gray is hospital-free days. This is that good home time, right? Um, this is dialysis time, and this darker gray line is hospital. And what they found was that folks who did dialysis lived longer, and in this particular subset of patients, quite a bit longer than the maximum conservative management patients they followed. But the amount of time gained that was actually home time, that wasn't dialysis time, and that wasn't inpatient hospital time was relatively small. 47% of time for these patients who chose dialysis was spent either in dialysis or So I think having this information is important when you're going to start to have a conversation with a patient about how um, to think about moving forward with their chronic kidney disease. And we all have probably different experiences and training and advanced communication skills, and this is not a lecture specifically about how to have advanced um, discussions about chronic illness. But what I would say is that if I'm going to talk with somebody like Mr. B, I would try and introduce the discussion in clinic and say, I've been worried about you, I've been going through a lot. And then I think it's really important to assess their understanding, no matter how well I think I've done talking with patients about their kidney disease, I'm always a little um, surprised to hear what they understand. Uh, and so saying, you know, I don't always feel like I do a great job explaining chronic kidney disease to my patients. And can you tell me what you understand about your kidneys? And then we can talk about um, the future. And then, you know, I'll share my understanding, and that's a broad statement, but it, it would be some of the information we just talked about. It would be incorporating their individual characteristics. The other thing I wanted to emphasize here, though, is, is I do give an opinion. I think, in so to me, it's very unfair to give people a whole bunch of information and be like, go think about that and let me know what you want to do. Because part of my job is to tell them what I think. And so I usually say, you know, I'm going to tell you what I think, kind of putting all this together. And, and I might say, I just, I don't think dialysis is gonna improve the quality of your life. I don't think it's probably even gonna meaningfully extend your life as one example. And then I usually qualify that with, but you should know that I will be here to support you and I will be your doctor, you know, whatever you choose. So that's kind of the kind of very brief framework of how I might go about having a conversation like this. And I can tell you that this conversation can go one of three ways. I have patients who just say, absolutely, that's for me, I want dialysis. 
If they seem really clear, I try to make sure they've talked to their family about it and um, get them some dialysis education, right? And then I have some patients who say, absolutely not. I do not want that. And then I do need to unpack that a little bit with patients to make sure that it's not, that, that it's well understood what that means for them, right? <clears throat> when patients don't choose dialysis, um, one of the things they do tend to say, or if they're kind of leaning in that, no, I don't want that realm, they might say, well, what's that going to be like? And I put this slide in um, because I think we often will say to people, well, dying from renal failure, you know, you just, you, you get sleepy, you go to sleep and then you die. It's not quite that simple. Um, I think that sounds really appealing and there are times when it can be like that. Um, but there are a variety of symptoms patients who choose maximal conservative management can experience. And I think it's important to know about those. Um, so fatigue and low energy is the most common. Pruritus is actually pretty common. It could be uremic pruritus, hyperphosphatemic pruritus, or both. Pain is relatively common. And I can't say I know exactly why this happens for everyone. Um, the last couple of patients that I've had who've chosen maximum conservative management or have withdrawn care from dialysis have had some trouble with pain. And in both cases, it was related to really severe bed sores. Um, and so it's not always directly related to the kidneys, but um, keep in mind that it's prevalent. Poor appetite and dyspnea uh, can be relatively common, especially depending on volume management. And now, lest that be terribly discouraging, um, at least one study has actually looked at how symptom burden compared for folks who chose maximum conservative management versus dialysis. And they found a very similar symptom burden with actually more intense symptoms in the patients who were on dialysis. So this may not sound as appealing as you just go to sleep and pass away, um, but it's still potentially um, not worse than being on dialysis. So by and large, the most common way this conversation goes is not a definite yes or a definite no. It's an I'm not sure, right? <laughs> um, and that's okay. And there was actually a study that just came out last week that talks about this um, right to not decide for patients uh, who are older and who are trying to think about advanced CKD care. So I usually try when possible, it's not always possible, to have these conversations in a scenario before an imminent decision is needed. And in the outpatient world, we sometimes have that luxury. And we'll look at an inpatient example here in just a minute. Um, but it's the idea of just bringing it up summarizing it. I try to provide something written in the after-visit summary. I document it in my note. I say, hey, why don't you bring your kids or your spouse or your other decision maker to the next appointment, or we'll have them on speakerphone if they can't come to clinic. And then we revisit over time when appropriate. Sometimes just planting the seed and putting this information out there can help people make decisions later in ways that can be hard to predict, um, that I don't always know if they heard me until something happens and then they bring it up again. So let's talk about how this scenario might change a little bit in the hospital. So Mr. B, the patient we were just talking about, has unfortunately gotten pneumonia. He's landed back in the hospital and things are not going well. Uh, so his BUN is quite high, his creatinine is quite high. Um, he's got some signs of uremia and also some delirium on exam. And in a moment of lucidity, I talk with him and he says, you know, I just, just haven't decided yet. You know, I talked with my family, but I don't know what I want to do. And just to point out some characteristics that we now know are important, he's also still really dependent on others for his care. He's living in a SNF, he's minimally ambulatory, he's at a very low BMI now. Um, and so um, his functional status at this moment in time is not great. So facing this kind of discussion in the hospital, I'm, I feel fortunate if I've been able to have a discussion in the outpatient setting first, I haven't always, um, but you can kind of think about the same framework, even if, if it's a newer patient to you. So we'd want to reiterate with the patient and hopefully their decision maker what dialysis is, what it can do, 
Can it prolong life? Maybe. Um, could it improve his volume status since that's an issue in his hospitalization? Um, as long as he tolerates it, it probably can. But also talk about what it can't do. Can't make his pneumonia better. Can't make his kidneys better. And that's a really common misconception I see in the hospital. Dialysis does not make your kidneys better. Um, as long as you don't drop the blood pressure, it does not make your kidneys worse. It is just taking the place of your kidneys function while they can't do that thing that they're supposed to do for you. Um, and it probably would improve his overall prognosis, right? His prognosis is more than his renal function. It's part of it right now, but it is not the whole big picture. And it's unlikely to improve his quality of life or his functional status. So often in this type of situation, I find myself in this moment of, of considering a trial of dialysis. And, and I think this is fine. There are certainly more times than most in the hospital where you're not gonna have somebody say, okay, I'm ready, just you know, let's do palliative care. A trial of dialysis comes up often, but what I would encourage you to do is, is really think through the structure of your trial of dialysis and set specific goals. So if you just say, okay, let's do a trial of dialysis and see how you do, and then you just go do dialysis, that's not really a trial. That's just putting somebody on dialysis, right? A trial of dialysis means that you say, what are we hoping to get from dialysis? What is this going to do for us? Going to improve your volume status so you can breathe better and you can participate in physical therapy, improve your mobility. It's going to make your nausea better so that you can eat more and improve your nutritional status. Set specific goals and then set a time frame to revisit. So um, say in a month, six weeks at the most, we're gonna come back. A week is usually too short unless you're in some very specific circumstances, but four to six weeks, and then you need to come back and say, did we achieve the things we wanted to achieve? I think setting these goals is incredibly important, at least in part because, especially in medicine, in my experience, it is so much easier to not start something than it is to stop it. And stopping dialysis, for all the reasons we've talked about, is very scary for folks, and so, at least having these goals allows people to go back and say, well, I am doing that or I'm not, but this is my new goal. At least it allows kind of the conversation to kind of be revisited and move forward, hopefully in a productive way. And potentially give people an out if they're not finding it's helpful. So one more clinical case um, is Ms. C. So Ms. C is actually already on dialysis. She's been on for a couple of years and she is in the hospital. And she's been in and out of the hospital a bunch, right? She's got worsening aortic stenosis. She doesn't have therapeutic intervention options. Um, and you go to see her in the hospital and she says, God, it's barely home a week, right? So we've all seen patients like this. And it's, it's a good opportunity to highlight what the end of life can look for for dialysis patients. So hospital admission is incredibly common in dialysis patients in the last 90 days of life, 80% of folks, right? This is common and it isn't changing. ICU admission is also incredibly common at the end of life for dialysis patients, even among the oldest old. So this green line is 85 and up, 50% more end up with an ICU admission in the last 90 days of life. So that's pretty impressive. Inpatient death is also quite common in dialysis patients. And um, even in the oldest old, you can see it lands at, at 30%. Now, some patients might prefer to die in the hospital. Certainly that's an individual decision, but studies have shown that the majority of patients would rather not die in the hospital. Um, and so this is still potentially um, important to understand. And then hospice utilization is really quite low in dialysis patients. And, and even in those who are 85 and up, it only hits 40%. So why is that? 
right? Why isn't hospice utilized more in this population? So I think, um, and this is kind of a busy slide, there's a lot to unpack here in terms of why we don't use hospice more in dialysis patients. Part of it is setting around um, the serious illness discussion. So as a nephrologist, when I see my patients on dialysis, I see them in the dialysis unit, which means they're roughly three to four feet from a neighbor on each side. There's not a lot of privacy there. Um, I have offered patients in the past multiple times the opportunity to talk with me in clinic, even virtually now, um, and have these discussions there. But, you know, dialysis patients are already going to dialysis three times a week. It's the rare patient who is willing to come and see me in addition to that. Um, there's also well-documented studies that cerebral blood flow, blood flow in general, changes during dialysis. So sometimes I worry that when I have these discussions with patients in dialysis, they don't always retain everything that we talk about in a way that I would hope they might. These patients also, as we've talked about a number of times today, have complex comorbidity, which means um, they often have fragmented care teams. They have four other specialists. They have a primary care provider. We aren't always in the same healthcare system. And if I'm having this conversation with a patient and nobody else knows about it, it's, in, it's a lot less meaningful. And so that coordination of care can be harder um, in dialysis patients with complex comorbidity. Um, this idea of limited time remaining after dialysis discontinuation is a big piece here. If somebody has a GFR of zero and they only have a week or two and they stop dialysis, it's an incredibly scary and hard thing to do. And sometimes, especially these days with resources in the community, sometimes being stretched thin, it can be hard to even get them on hospice before they would die, right? Um, and then complexity of identifying decline. Uh, it's harder than you, than you might think. And I, I think that's largely because dialysis patients are just the toughest patients I know. They just put one foot in front of the other and keep going. And because of that, it can kind of pass you by if you aren't looking for it, this decline that they have. The surprise question can be quite useful here. I'm guessing you all are familiar with that. It was a study by Alvin Moss um, in 2008 that looked at about 150 dialysis patients. And they actually talked to their nephrologist and they said, if you look at your patient, would you be surprised if they died in the next 12 months? And if the nephrologist said no, wouldn't be surprised. That patient for whom they said no would have an odds ratio of three and a half times higher than a patient for whom they said, yes, I would be surprised. So we're good at telling. And even just taking that moment to reflect and say, would I be surprised if my patient died? And if the answer is no, maybe that's a good time to kind of have some complex discussions about decision-making for dialysis patients. You can also think about other signs of decline, multiple admissions, multiple access problems, falling weight, falling albumin. Those are all potential um, good times to pause and have a discussion. And just briefly, there's a lot of complexity to hospice use in dialysis patients, um, largely because the same pool of money is used to pay for hospice and dialysis. So if a patient is on hospice and dialysis, um, somebody isn't getting paid full price for those two services. And unfortunately, in this country, the companies who are getting paid are the ones who are making the decision about whether or not someone can be on hospice and dialysis at the same time, which I realize sounds terrible and in my opinion it's terrible and it's something that's being looked at um, by groups um, nationally now but it's the idea because of that idea excuse me um, in general it's impossible to get someone an adult approved for hospice um, and have them continue dialysis if their end-stage renal disease is the reason for hospice enrollment so i have successfully done this for patients who are dying actively of something else most often cancer but it's still hard and takes a fair amount of planning. 
there's an, uh, a subset of nephrologists, a kind of growing group who feel like we should be allowed to offer palliative dialysis. The patients should be able to come once a week um, and kind of slowly decrease the intensity of their care on hospice. Um, and, and as of right now, that's that's really hard to do, but hope for the future, I suppose. <clears throat> so just to wrap this up, then we'll have a couple minutes for questions. For Ms. C, most often, um, even though she's been in and out of the hospital and she really wishes she was at home, I can tell you that the majority of conversations I have with patients like this, they just say, well, I don't, I don't really feel ready to stop. And this is a good opportunity to revisit that idea of goal setting. Um, kind of like we talked about for a trial of dialysis. So they're not ready to stop, that's okay. But either during the hospitalization or maybe after, I would hope to have a conversation with someone like this along the lines of, um, you've really been through a lot and, and you tolerate a lot, but I wanna make sure that I know what's acceptable to you in terms of your quality of life. And I would have a conversation with them, hopefully about the things that matter to them. A good question that I find helpful is what makes a good day? Hopefully they can give you an example of that. And when the last time was they had a day like that? And then what would be unacceptable? What quality of life is just not okay? And most often people would say, I don't wanna be on a ventilator. I don't wanna not be able to talk to my family, but you'd be surprised what people would say in that situation and then documenting that. So that if patients come around to the point where you know those things about them and they aren't meeting those goals, you can perhaps have a more productive discussion again uh, in the future uh, to guide care at that time. And I think I've given us about five minutes for questions. Uh, thank you so much for your attention. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Weiss, for just an excellent and important talk. Um, we do have a number of questions and comments. I'll just lead us off with a comment first from one of our palliative care providers um, who says, thank you so much for covering this important topic, especially with not being overly optimistic with hemodialysis <laughs> to our elderly and frail patients. Um, and then some questions, maybe getting into some specifics. A um, couple different comments, uh, thanking you for highlighting maximum conservative management and wondered some follow-up questions about how to logistically manage um, some issues. Um, volume seems to come up most commonly, um, but also questions about metabolic acidosis and um, hypotension. Hypo or hyper, sorry. Hy hypo more so, okay. but either, yeah. Hmm. Okay, sure. Um, I can tell you that it's it's quite difficult and um, I wish almost weekly that I have one of those complex CKD clinics that they have in Europe. Um, that is That would be my dream because it would be a lot easier to have a multidisciplinary team to help um, in scenarios like this. And it is much harder to manage patients with maximum conservative management than it is to just put them on dialysis. So it is a lot more work, in my opinion. That's okay, it's worthwhile work. Um, so to answer more directly for volume management, um, I think that it's important to use higher doses of diuretics when GFR is low. The way I explain it to patients is they can't feel the lower doses of the diuretics. So if someone doesn't respond to 40, don't give them 40 twice a day, give them 80, and then go to 120 of Lasix. And, and quite frankly, I really like torsamide, especially if albumin is low, the bioavailability is better, and don't be afraid of high doses. And keep in mind that you don't necessarily have to be checking labs, right? You're not gonna do much with that information. If you're worried about potassium being low on diuretics and symptoms that could cause, you could check once, but you're not tracking their renal function because that's not your goal anymore. And so higher doses of diuretics and preferably those that are more bioavailable, I think are, are helpful. Um, for acidosis, sodium bicarb, 
Uh, I do it. It does have a sodium load. Uh, reasonable doses, 1,300 milligrams twice a day is, is often a starting dose for me, depending on how low the bicarb is. You can start lower and, and move them up. If they hate sodium bicarbonate or you're really looking for something with a lower sodium load, you can actually use baking soda. A teaspoon of baking soda has more bicarbonate in it than two tablets of sodium bicarbonate. It tastes bad. Uh, it's really bitter. And so I recommend putting it in something uh, like cranberry juice. Uh, it works pretty well. But I usually tell patients to take it like a medicine. Don't sip it like a beverage. Uh, just if you're going to do it, mix it in and chug it. Um, but that's a nice option for folks who either can't afford sodium bicarbonate or, or for whatever reason, it's not working well for them. Hypotension. Um, gosh, if it's hypotension at the end of life, I would say it's hypotension at the end of life and I wouldn't do much about it. <clears throat> if you're talking about somebody with bad orthostasis, I mean, the is an okay thing to use as long as they're not bradycardic. I like non-invasive things like compression stockings with recognition they're incredibly hard to get on. And so think about that carefully in your older patients. Um, but if their blood pressure is really low and they're at the end of their life, then I think if you haven't already engaged hospice, you need to. And, and I guess that would be the other kind of big take home thing I would say is it's really important, I think, in talking to patients about maximum, maximum conservative management of introducing the idea of hospice early on, even though you won't necessarily refer them early on. There are specific criteria for when these patients can go to hospice, and it is not necessarily the point when you would make a decision about maximum conservative management. Um, but uh, I think explaining that at some point I would want hospice to join their care team, I find that very helpful. And, and for my patients who have wanted to, I've continued to see them even after they're on hospice. And sometimes I don't bill for those encounters because I'm not always sure how that works and I, that's fine. I think um, sometimes knowing that I'm going to be a part of their care team perpetually is, is important. And I think that would be true for primary care providers um, especially. So. Does that help answer those questions? That's great. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you for the specifics. Um, the logistics really help. A um, couple of questions here. When would a nephrology referral best be initiated in order to preserve renal function as mm -hmm. long as possible and to ensure the patient is on the best regimen of care? Often it seems like referral is not considered until quite late in the course of CKD. So kind of the ideal window. Gosh, I, that's a good question. It's a hard question. So if you just look at the guidelines, they would say that unless somebody has significant proteinuria, they don't need us until the GFR is below 30. And that guideline exists because so many people have a GFR below 60 if you're using eGFR equation alone. But I think the thing to think about also is trajectory. So significant proteinuria or rapid changes in renal function over time, um, losing more than, than three or four mils per year, um, is, is an okay time to think about referring your patient. Um, and certainly they're below 30, I would. Um, and I think that it's okay. Sometimes the writing's on the wall in terms of other comorbidities. So if somebody has really bad heart failure and they've had an admission with AKI, I think you could consider nephrology involvement unless they went all the way back to a normal baseline after that admission. But that's all based on experience. I don't unfortunately think there's like a concrete answer to your very good question because people are so unique. Um, and I think that if you're considering maximum conservative management, some patients would really benefit from seeing a nephrologist. Um, but I, I know some primary care providers who are very comfortable having those discussions without us. And so I think it has a lot to do with the comfort level of both the patient and the other providers on their care team. Right. Thank you. That is helpful. I know it's difficult to give an exact answer. Uh, yeah. I will sneak in one more question here. Um, thoughts about um, benefits of considering dialysis before versus waiting until after something like a major procedure or surgery 
if you're anticipating a trajectory of, of worsened renal function? Um, I wouldn't preemptively start dialysis. Uh, generally, I mean, if there's a reason, there's a reason, but if there's no reason, I typically wouldn't do it. Um, it's not as though doing so protects the kidneys. Uh, it's okay to be ready. So if you are, just a, an example, if you have somebody with um, CKD4 who's having a kidney removed, I'd think about putting a catheter in, in the OR, right? But I still wouldn't dialyze it before you go. And the same goes for, for cardiac surgery. We occasionally run into this question. And then it, to me, it really becomes, well, is there actually a reason? Because sometimes there is. Like, are they really volume up? And they need to be more optimized. That's that's an okay reason to think about doing it. But I wouldn't do it just to do it. There needs to be a reason because it doesn't um, protect kidneys in the same way that you don't, and I explain this to my dialysis patients all the time, you don't save up clearance. So if you go to dialysis Monday and you do an extra treatment on Tuesday and you go Wednesday, you can't skip till the next Monday. It doesn't work that way. And so you don't you don't build up clearance and keep it, um, so to speak. That helps. That helps so much. And I want to recognize we are officially at 9.01. So thank you so much, Dr. Weiss, for a wonderful talk and for the great questions from our audience. We'll see you next week. Thank you for having Thanks me. Thanks so much.